What a great time of worship. Amen, church? We're starting in the book of Romans this morning, and I can't think of a better book to study in the Bible than this book of the Bible. If you were to ask me, Aaron, you know, tell me the one book. If I should read one book in the Bible, which one should it be? It would be this one. This is the Bible in a nutshell. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ explained both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you want to understand faith, if you want to understand what it means to be justified, if you want to understand what it means to be transformed, everything important to the Christian life is found in the words written to this church in the city of Rome. This is one of the most unique books of the Bible simply because it was written to a people that Paul had never met. The letters that Paul normally writes, he's writing to churches. If you remember, he traveled the known world at that time. He hadn't made it as far as Rome. He eventually would want to go as far as Spain. But at this point in his life, none of the apostles had been to Rome. Not Simon Peter, not the Apostle Paul, not John, none of them had made it to Rome. Yet what we find is that there is a church thriving in the city of Rome. This is the most important city in the world. Four million people, four million lost souls live in this ancient city of Rome. And you ask yourself, well, how in the world did a church get there? If the Apostle Paul didn't plan it, then how did it get there? If these missionaries, these men like Barnabas and and Silas and John Mark and, and Luke, if they didn't go and plant this church, then how in the world did it get planted? Because of people just like you. You see, the future of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been laid into the hands of every believer of Jesus Christ. You see, it wasn't just the preachers that were preaching the gospel. We, we learned last week that it was the deacons that were also preaching the gospel. The deacons literally were the first ones martyred. Stephen was the first Christian martyr, not, a, not a, a, an apostle, simply a man who was called upon to serve, but he was a man full of faith. And he was faithful to go and to tell others about Jesus Christ. We've been talking about who's your one. Literally, that's how the gospel spread around the world. Paul had never met these people, yet he loved these people. He wanted these people to not just be saved, but those that were saved to grow in their faith. And what we find, this is a letter that would be written to the Romans three years before he would actually arrive in the city of Rome. And for three years, they would take the words of this gospel and and, and the words of, of this book of the Bible, this letter, this personal letter that was written to the Roman church would help them for those three years to deepen their faith, to become a church that would make an impact in the city of Rome, even though within the city of Rome, they were facing some of the worst persecution of the early church. And before Paul goes to Rome, what he wants is he wants the people of Rome to get to know him. What we're going to look at this morning is the introduction to the book of Romans. And I don't want you to to check out on me and think, well, this is going to be boring. It's going to be an introduction to a book. No, no, no. We're going to see the man, (laughs) the message, and the mission of the Apostle Paul. This is his introduction of himself because, again, unlike the other books, this is why this introduction is longer than all the other books that he wrote because he is writing to people that don't know him, that have never met him. They know of him. They desperately want him to visit. But he wants to give them a glimpse into his heart. Because, you see, the reality is people need to know our hearts. They need to know our motives. They need to understand that we love them and the depth of our love for them because if people that we care about are going to come to Christ to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to come because there's been a lot of love and compassion. Paul's no different. When he writes this letter, he wants the Romans to see his heart, and not just his heart, but his life. What sustains him? What drives him? What motivates him? And after that, he's going to share his theology. What he knows about God. What he wants them to know about God. He wants to share with them the truth 
but folks, I would agree, and I think you see a little glimpse in this introduction of what's true. The best way to win people to Christ is through relationship. For some people to believe it, they got to see it. They got to understand it. Jesus modeled for us that in so many ways, the greatest way to reach a person spiritually is to meet the needs of that person physically even. And he wants to introduce himself. He wants them to know him and to know his heart and to understand his intentions and what he's passionate about. And what we find in this gospel is that he is a man consumed with the gospel. When you read the first seven verses, I want to just explain them quickly before we get into the main part of the text. But you get a glimpse, like I said, into the who Paul is, what motivates him, what drives him. You find in these verses that he is passionate about the gospel. He says, Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God for which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In English class, they called that a run-on sentence. That is one sentence. But let me tell you what's important about this sentence. Number one, we get to see the identity of who Paul is. In this introduction, you just get to see... Paul, he identifies himself in the weirdest of ways. Out of all the things that he could have said, he could have called himself a church planner. He could have called himself a preacher. He could have called himself anything. You know what he was? He was just a servant, a bond servant. What he recognized was what he said in the book of Galatians, that, that I've been crucified with Christ. We just sang about it. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He realizes his life is not his own. He realizes that he doesn't do what he wants to do, but he has a master. He has a king who gives direction to every point and part of his life, and that his greatest accomplishment in this life will be like Jesus, living like Jesus, where Jesus submitted his human will to God's will. Folks, that's where the battleground lies for most of us each and every day, just to get to the point where Paul begins, that we recognize I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ, that literally our battle begins every day with simply saying, being honest with ourselves and saying, his ways are greater than my ways. His thoughts greater than my thoughts. His purposes and plans for me far outshine the purposes and the plans that I could dream up for myself. It's coming to the recognition every day, just simply getting to the place when we get out of bed to say, not my will, Lord. Your will be done. Sitting at the end of our lives and being able to say, I did everything, Father, that you asked me to do. See, that's what he meant when he said, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he said, not just a bondservant, but I'm called. If you want to know what God has done into me and through me, he's called me to be an apostle. An apostle simply means a sent out one. See, Paul recognizes what we all must recognize, that each and every one of us in this room, guess what you are? You are a sent out one. You say, no, no, that's Paul. No, no, that's you. Uh, much of this introduction has everything to do with you because the way he's identifying himself, we're bondservants. Listen, we have been sent out. We have a calling on our life to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. It wasn't just for a few. It was for all who claim the name of Christ. And he says, I have been called as an apostle. I've been set apart for the gospel of God. Remember, the gospel came to us on its way to someone else, right? And God has set us apart as an instrument, a tool to take the gospel. And he says, this gospel of God, if you wonder what the word gospel means, we're going to use it a lot through this whole book. It simply means, you need to write it down so you remember, gospel is good news. 
When we say the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we're talking about the good news of Jesus. Why is Jesus good news? Simply because we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, and yet Jesus Christ came to this earth. God loved us so much that he sent his son to save us from our sin. The punishment of sin was death. Jesus paid for our sin debt on the cross of Jesus Christ. He set us free. Sin's power on us is broken. The grave will not hold us. In Christ, and because of Christ, they will lay us in a grave one day, but our souls will go to be with him, and one day he will resurrect those bodies to be with him forever, ruling and reigning in heaven. And folks, that is good news. Paul said, I was set apart to take that good news. The good news is about the Son, that God became flesh and became the Son of Man. He dwelt among us, and it says He was a descendant of David according to the flesh. But not only was He fully man, but He goes on and says this gospel, this God, this Jesus that we're talking about, that I'm so passionate about, Paul is saying He wasn't declared just to be God's Son or the Son of Man, but He was declared to be the Son of God. How do we know? By the power of God and through the resurrection. That means that Jesus showed himself to be God's son, not just a mere man like you and I, but he was fully man and he was also fully God. When he walked up to heal or to lame people, guess what he could do? He could tell them to get up and walk and they would. When he was in the midst of a storm on a sea, he could say, peace be still. And guess what? The wind and the waves, they obeyed him. Nature was under his control. He showed himself through power to be God. If eyes were blind, he could give them sight again. He could even raise the dead to life. And the greatest evidence of who he is is that when he died for our sins and they placed him in the ground three days later, what happened? He rose again. Only God. And he says, this is who I'm talking about. The son of man, born of David, the son of God, who displayed power and who we see was the son of God because of the resurrection from the dead. This holy one, Jesus And he said, it's this Jesus, it's through him that we have received grace. Grace is a beautiful word. We're going to study it, study it, study it, and let's look. He's laying out the future of what he's going to be saying. He's saying, this Jesus came, and because of him we have grace. You know what grace is? Unmerited favor. You know what grace is? It means that God pours out his blessing on the undeserved, on the ones who can't earn it. On the ones who are so hopelessly lost, they need desperately a Savior, or else there's no way they would ever be saved. We serve a God of grace and a God of mercy. He gives us what we don't deserve. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. Amen. And he says, not only do we receive his grace, but he said, we have received our apostleship. We've been sent out to bring about the obedience of faith. What that simply means is that he's been called not just to win the lost, but also to teach the saved so that they can become obedient to God. We've been saying for weeks, discipleship isn't just evangelism, and it's not just discipleship. It's evangelism and discipleship. We win the lost, and we disciple the saved. And Paul says, that's what I've given my life to. That's who I am in Jesus Christ. And then he simply finishes with this, and I I love it in what he says in 6 and 7. He says, among whom you also were called of Jesus Christ. So there you go. He says, I'm not just talking about my calling. I'm talking about your calling. I'm not the only one sent out. I'm not the only one who's been commanded to go. He says, just as I've been called, now you've been called. Those are Jesus' own words. He's just saying what Jesus said. Just as the Father sent me, so I send I you, or so send I you. Whoa. First service was rough. I couldn't get my tongue to work right. And he says, not only are you called of Jesus, but here's where it gets beautiful. He says, I want you to know that you are also, Roman church, beloved of God. There's one thing I want to tell all of you today in Christ. You are beloved. God loves you like no one else has ever loved you. He is the very definition of love, sacrificing himself so that you could have eternal life. We are beloved of God, and he 
has called us. I mean, this is amazing. He has called us saints. You know what we really are, right? I don't know about you, but when he found me, my life was a mess. When he found me, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. The reality is, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, I struggle to live the life that he's called me to live. And every day, I sin. Every day, I struggle, whether it's my thoughts, whether it's my actions, whether it's my words. No matter how long I've been following Jesus, the devil wants to whisper in my ear, you're nothing but a what? A sinner. God can't love you. Has God really saved you? Can he really change you? Anybody ever ask questions like that? You know what God declares? Because of your faith in me, you are a saint. Let that sink in. How can that possibly be? Because on the cross, he took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. Let me say that again. On the cross, he didn't just, because we just think he paid for our sin. No, no, he did much more than that. He paid the price for sin. He took our sin, the debt for our sin. The wage of sin is what? Death. He paid the price. And not only did he take sin out of our account, the very righteous life that he lived, holy, never having sinned, that righteousness now got placed in our account. So when Jesus looks at me, when God the Father looks at me, you know what he sees? Not my sin, Christ's righteousness. That's crazy. Folks, I don't know about you, that's good news. That's good news. And he says, Roman church, and he would say to us today, know that you are called, know that you are loved, know that because of the justification that comes through Christ's sacrifice, you are a saint. He says, grace and peace to you. And here's where he gets personal. Because this is just a look into his life, his heart. Before he gets to the theology, he wants him to know that he's a man consumed with this gospel that has changed his life. And when you get to verse 8, here's where he really begins. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because of your faith, it's being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, he is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. What is he doing there? What is he saying he's doing for this church? He's praying for them. When he begins with saying, I'm thankful, this is the beginning of him saying, First, more than anything else, I want you to know that I am praying for you. He said, I'm always making mention of you. Always in my prayers, making requests. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as the rest of, among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Who are also in Rome. And I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul wants him to see four important things, and this is the meat of it this morning. He wants us to see his prayer life. He wanted them to see and understand his prayer life, because you can tell a lot about a man by his prayer life. And he says to these people, though I've never seen you, you know what he does constantly for them? He prays for them. And you may not know it, but prayer is the best ministry you can offer to an individual. Most of us think, before we do ministry, let's have a word of prayer. No, prayer is ministry. It's the most important ministry that we offer to others is to intercede for them. Paul says that in relation to you, there's three things that I'm always doing. 
I'm always thankful for you. And I think it's amazing because he says, you know, as I walk and I talk with God every day, you are always being mentioned unceasingly. I think about you and he says, I'm thankful to God because I see this faith. And not only do I see your faith and by faith, he means that it's real. It's not just words. Faith is more than just believing words. It's believing them enough to change the direction of your life. It means if I say I have faith that I can sit in this chair and it'll hold my weight, how do you know I have faith? Because I'm going to sit in it and put my weight on it. If I believe a plane can get me from point A to point B, if I, I can say all day long I have faith, how do you know that I have faith? Because I'm going to get on the plane. Because if I really don't have faith, you couldn't drag me on there. Somewhere faith and those works come together and the works show that we truly believe. And he says, I look at your life, and not just me, but he says, the whole world is watching this church that sprung up out of nowhere because someone was faithful to share the gospel, and they went home and shared it with another and another and another. And now there is this wonderful church in Rome. He says, the whole world sees you and knows of your faith. And he says, I'm thankful for the testimony, for the difference that you're making Paul recognizes that not only are they living out their faith in in a pagan culture, but a pagan culture that is seeking to persecute them. They are enduring hardship. And he says, the world is watching. They see your faith. They are amazed by your faith and how you're living is making a difference. He says, every time I speak to my God, I'm thankful. He says, and I'm interceding for you. Even though he wasn't there physically, guess what he can be? He can be there spiritually. He can pray. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever think about the people around the world that are our brothers and sisters? We may not get to see them, you know. I mean, I get to hang out with, uh, you know, Corbin at his house. We go fishing, right? We may sit there and fish, hang out. We get to talk. He's a Christian that I can see and touch and pray with and and encourage, right? But do you realize that there are millions more around the world? That though we may not see and be able to touch and, and, and pray with them, hear our voice, do you realize the power of prayer and what it does to move the kingdom of God around the world? Let me ask you, how serious are you about praying, interceding, being thankful for the things that are happening around the world? When you hear the stories of Christians in places like Sudan, places like Iran and and Afghanistan, when you hear the stories where people are persecuted for their faith, do you take time to remember that they're every bit as much a part of the body of Christ as all these people that you see and know their names? And that they need your prayers just as desperately. He says, I may not be with you, but he... I think one of the most loving things you can do for a person is pray for them. He says, I'm always praying, unceasingly for you, interceding. I'm asking God to let me come to you. Part of the intercession is Paul is saying, I want to meet you. I long to see you. He says, for years you've established this church, and he hasn't been able to get there. Remember, there aren't planes, trains, and automobiles. Remember, to make the journey from Jerusalem to Rome would be an endeavor. And not only has he gone all around the world planting churches, but he's going back again and trying to encourage those churches. Some of these churches are struggling, so he has to go back and rebuke and kind of get them back on the right path. Paul is a busy man being stoned, you know, shipwrecks. He's kind of got a busy life. He says, I desperately want to come. But the Lord just hasn't seen fit. And he says, I want to come. And we're going to see why he wants to come in just a moment. The second thing I want you to see is not just his prayer life and how he is thankful and intercedes and submits his life. He wants to be there where God is moving and working and he submits himself to God's will. But we see, secondly, his love for the church. You see, Paul has what all of us should have. And again, you're going to say, well, Aaron, that's what you should have. No, no, it's what you should have too. Do you have a shepherd's heart? I mean, don't think of the spiritual gifts as I only have one and I have nothing of the others. Could you imagine if I was only, because I have a strong administrative gift. But could you imagine if there was no mercy? Now, I'm not the most merciful person, I'll admit that. 
but there's some in there. Because if there was none, I'd be miserable. None of you would want to talk to me or hang out with me. You know what I mean? And, and if one of you were the person that had the gift of mercy and that's all that you had, well, you'd just be in a puddle crying all the time and nobody would want to be around you either. Because all of us have these gifts and, and one or two of them just stand out, but the others are there. And I want you to realize that when he, he talks to these people and he shares with these people, he's saying to them, I love you and I have this heart of a shepherd that wants to care for you, that wants to feed you spiritually, that wants to nourish you spiritually, that wants to protect you from wolves that are in sheep's clothing. Where does a shepherd's heart come from? Why should all believers have a shepherd's heart? Because the heart of Jesus is supposed to be beating inside of us, right? And he is the good what? You want to talk about a good shepherd? A good shepherd lays down what? His life for the sheep. When Paul goes to take the gospel to Rome, you know what he knows in going to Rome to take the gospel, to give these people a chance at salvation, you realize what he knows is going to happen there, right? You see, the same heart that was in Jesus in the Apostle Paul. Why? Because Paul died and Jesus is alive in him. How can that heart not be there? And Jesus loves people and the church is people. And he says here in the book of Romans, he says, I long to see you. Why? Because I want to impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That doesn't mean... That Paul's going to go around and get there, and he's, he, you know, we read that and we think he's going, okay, Jason, I'm going to give you the gift of preaching, and Valerie, I'm going to give you the gift of administration, and Corbin, I'm going to give you the gift of hospitality, and I'm going to distribute the spiritual gifts. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that God has given myself and the people that will be coming with me, he has given them spiritual gifts. And you know what he's actually saying? I'm going to take those gifts, and I'm going to use them for the glory of God in your midst. So if God has given me the gift of preaching, Paul says, then I'm going to come and preach. Why? Because I want this church to be strengthened. And others who may be coming with Paul, they may have the gift of hospitality. Others may have the gift of giving. Others may have the gift of faith. And here is a church struggling with persecution, struggling to keep walking forward faithfully, following God no matter what. And sometimes God sends us men with gifts like faith or discernment. And you may not realize it yet, but God has given you gifts. Most of us employ those gifts too often only for ourselves. One of the greatest tragedies in the church is that many, 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 many people that are part of the church of Jesus Christ, they employ their gifts everywhere but in the church. And you see, God said, I gave you those gifts for one reason, that you may employ them within the body of believers. So if he gave you the gift of teaching, teach. Why? Because there's churches, there are people that desperately need what you have the capability to give because God has gifted you. You have people that have no family, and you may say, what good is the gift of hospitality? Well, when you have someone that knows no one and feels part of nothing, when someone comes along who has that gift of making you feel welcome and making you part of their home and family, guess what? That can be the front door to that person receiving Jesus Christ. There is not one gift that's greater than another. And he says, I want to come because I love you. I love the church. I love these local saints. You may have speaking gifts. You may have serving gifts. You may have the, the gift of giving. But whatever it is, use it for the glory of God. Employ it not for yourself, but for others. And guys, the reason Paul loves the church, if you notice, he said, I need it as bad as you need it. He said, I want to be there so that your faith will challenge me. So that your faith will encourage me. So that your faith, you notice he said that. He didn't come all, all prideful and say, you know, I got what you need. And if you'll let me come in, I'll make this thing happen. 
You guys don't seem to be getting it all figured. No, no. He comes in and he's humble. And all he says is, I just want to be among you because that which God has done for me, I want to do for you. And that which God has done for you, I want you to do for me because I want this to encourage all of us and strengthen all of us. That's the great thing about the church. You never walk alone. If there's one thing this church does right, I love that this church loves each other. I watch it every week in here. There's so many things I can't know about your life. I can't follow you at home. I don't know what you're doing during the week, many of you. But I do know this, that when those doors open, the one thing that people constantly say when they enter these doors is this is a place where I feel the love of God, where I feel encouraged, where I feel a part. And folks, that's the way that it should be. Mutually encouraging each other because we love each other. And that means that we love, serve, and pray not just for the local church, but it's why we have a mission center. We go around the world because there are churches around the world that guess what they need? They need love, service, and encouragement every bit as much as we do. And many times we can go and be that. And I can tell you, every time we go on the mission field, we think we're going to go and bless, and guess what happens? It's like we offer nothing, and we come back completely blessed. Sabrina, what do you think? Africa was life-changing, wasn't it? And you go over there thinking what we may have to offer, and you come back realizing they have it all over there. And we get to be part of what God's doing there. It's a humbling thing. Thirdly, we see his priority for world evangelism. We don't just see his prayer life. We don't just see his love for the church. But we also see his priority for world evangelism. I love what he says. He said, I don't want you to be unaware. I've been trying to come to you in verse 13. He says, but the Lord has kept me from coming. And he says, again, this is part of why I want to come. Not just to help you and, and use these gifts to help you be established and to encourage you. But he says, I also want to come because I have a passion for people to know Christ. He says, I want to come so that there might be a work among you, a work that bears much fruit as it has been everywhere else that he's traveled. He said, I've been to Lystra. I've, I've been to Greece. He's been everywhere, all over the known world. Everywhere that the gospel is preached, people are saved. He says, I can't wait to get to Rome. Because there's one thing Jesus cares for. Guess what he cares for? Souls, lost souls, seeking and saving those that are lost. He says, I can't wait to get there. He says, I want to help you in the work that you're doing to see fruit born out in the lives of people, not just the lost, but even within the church, people being challenged and deepened in their faith so that Christ is glorified. He says that all of this is done, and don't miss that. All of this is being done for his name's sake, and Paul is keenly aware of that. This isn't for my name. This isn't for my glory. This isn't so that I'll be remembered. He says, I want to go and I want to see this fruit because I want God to be glorified. And I love the words that he uses. You want to say how passionate is he about world evangelization? Look at his words. I am under obligation. Let me really challenge you today. Is that how you see your role in the kingdom? Most of us see our role as volunteers. If I want to do it, I'll do it. If I don't, find somebody else. Is that the attitude of Paul at all? No, no. He says, the life that I'm living, I live for one reason. I am under complete obligation. And I want you to understand why the obligation he has been given the greatest gift. If there's one thing this world needs, it is forgiveness. It is freedom from sin. It is eternal life. I want you to think for a second. If I gave to you the cure for cancer and AIDS and every other disease that this world knows, and I gave it to you, wouldn't you be obligated to do something with it? Could you imagine sitting and watching your loved ones die of cancer and you're sitting there Holding the cure? If you did that, we would say, you are a monster. You're an absolute monster. How could you not feel obligated? You were given the cure and, and you received it for yourself, but you watched millions, hundreds of millions die when you knew the cure. 
But folks, that's how many of us live out our Christian faith. Let that reality sink in. We, sometimes I wonder, do we really believe in hell? Sometimes I wonder, do we really believe people go to hell? Sometimes I wonder, do we really believe that God will judge? And that the only hope that men have is forgiveness through Jesus. Sometimes I wonder, do we really believe it? Because sometimes I swear it's like we're holding a cure and we won't tell a soul. And we think that somehow we're going to stand before God and he's going to be. Good job. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You watched all of them. Go straight to hell. Do you feel? I, mean, I feel the weight of that. I'm talking to myself. I don't think I'm poking fun at y'all. I'm talking to me. God has to rake me over the coals before I come and do it for you. I have to seriously look at myself in the mirror before I stand up here, knowing that I have every bit as much a need to change my heart and to see my heart change as all of us do in this room. But we need to get back to where Paul was. I'm under obligation. I know the truth. I have the truth. I have what can save lost souls. I can keep people from spending eternity in hell. I've got to act like <laughs> that matters, that that's important. He had a missionary heart on top of that shepherd's heart. He loved the lost. He saw what Jesus saw, that there was a harvest ready to be reaped if only there were laborers. And he said, I'm under obligation. I have to preach to who? Who did he preach to? Says the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, the foolish. You know what he's trying to say? Everybody. Now, when you walk out of this building, you're going to see lots of people. And you've got to realize, you've got to see them as lost and saved. You've got to see them as without hope or with hope. With Christ or without Christ. It changes everything about eternity. And literally, he says, this gospel that we're going to take, we're going to take it to everybody. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. It doesn't matter their income. It doesn't matter what country they live in. None of that matters. Our obligation is to take the gospel to absolutely everybody that we can in the years that God has given us. Lastly, we see his confidence in the gospel. Before you say, well, you know, it's not very compelling to feel obligated to have to share your faith, I agree with you. That's why I love that Paul doesn't leave it with, I'm under obligation, because the next thing out of his mouth is, and not only am I under obligation, I'm eager. I'm eager. It's like me and ice cream, right? Don't get between me and the freezer. I'm eager. That means you can call me fat. That means you can say what you want, but if I'm eager to get that ice cream, you can say whatever you want. What am I going to do? I'm going to get that ice cream. I'm just going to look at you and say, we'll buy a bigger casket. We'll figure it out. <laughs> what are you eager about? Well, we all get eager about certain things. And when we're eager, it means we're going to do it. Because it is the priority of our life. And he says, you know, before you think, well, I'm just doing this out of obligation. No, 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 no. I'm eager to do it. I want to do it. I live to do it. It drives me. It sustains me. I am never closer to God than when I am doing the things that God would have me to do. And I love his words. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. both to the unbelievers and to help establish the faith, to help them walk worthy of the calling that has been given to them. And I love how he finishes this because he says, I want you to make no mistake, I am eager to preach to you. Why? He says, because I am not ashamed of the gospel. What a glorious verse. I am not ashamed. He's saying I'm not embarrassed. I'm not afraid. I'm not unwilling. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because Paul recognized, I'm eager to give you this because I know it's true. I'm eager to give you this because I know it's the cure. I know it works. I know it's truth. I know it will transform your life and your eternity. And he says, I am so eager to go do it because I so believe 
that this gospel, and folks, that ought to give us some relief. The salvation of the world isn't dependent upon you. You can't change a heart. You've never been able to change a heart. God says, I'm going to let my spirit reside in you. And when you go and tell people about Jesus, when you go and preach the word of God, you know what God does? He works in his spirit in the heart and soul of that person. And we have to let God do the work that only he can do. But the question is, do we believe he can actually do it? Because we look at people and we say, well, he's impossible. Well, they'll never get saved. If I speak to them, you know, they're just going to mock me. They're going to, you know, I may get fired. We have all these reasons. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, why don't you trust me for once and believe that if you share the truth, there are many people that are just waiting to hear it. And the only reason they haven't responded, the only reason they are still in their sin, stuck where they are, is because no one, not one time, has offered them another way. And they are doing only what they know to do by their very nature. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do we share that truth, that way, that life with people? Because Paul, I love it. I'm not ashamed. Ridicule me. I'm not ashamed. Threaten me. I'm not ashamed. Tell me I'm foolish. I'm not ashamed. Say it's a crutch. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed because when I believe and I live out my faith and I preach the gospel, you know what he says? People are saved. Oh, that we would believe that again. That people actually get saved at the proclamation of the gospel. Because, folks, there's only two options for us. We can either abandon the gospel out of embarrassment, which is what I fear so many have done today. You say, well, Aaron, how do you know that's what the churches are doing today? Because look at America. The darkness is prevalent. You know why darkness is prevalent? By definition, what is darkness? It is the absence of light. <laughs> Let that sink in a second. Jesus, out of the gate, the, great, or, uh, um, the, the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember what he said? You are the light of the world. You're like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one takes a light and hides it under a bushel. But instead, you put it on a lampstand for all to see. If there is darkness existing in this world, it is because there is an absence of light. Falsehoods only win when truth is unspoken. And Paul makes it crystal clear. We only have two options. We can abandon the gospel out of embarrassment, or we can, and I know this isn't easy, or we can embrace the shame. I know that's not very motivating. I know that that's hard to accept, and and it makes you swallow hard thinking that that's the call that God has placed on you. But it is. Embrace the shame. I don't know about you. I'm glad Jesus embraced the shame. Here is God in the flesh speaking and people are mocking him. Does it deter his message? Not once. They ridiculed him. Did it stop his message? Not once. When they went, said, we're going to abandon you because of your hard teachings, did he stop the teachings? No, not once. When they put a robe on him and a crown of thorns and mocked him as the king, <laughs> when in fact he is, did it stop him from dying for us? When they spit on him, when they plucked out his beard, when they nailed him to a cross, when they stripped him naked publicly to humiliate him. Do you see what Jesus did? He knew it was God's will and he knew that it was only the only way that men could be saved. And he was more than willing to embrace 
that shame. Because he knew that through it, what would happen? People would be saved. People would be saved. And so the question becomes, how much do we love people? As the band comes this morning, I just want you to be challenged, church, that if you are the one writing the introduction to Romans, what would people see about your prayer life? What could you honestly write? Could all you say is, you know, I pray as often as I eat a meal? pray as often as something bad's happening to me? Or could you honestly say, I pray and I give thanks for you and for you and for you and for you and for you? And every day without ceasing, I'm always praying and interceding. Not just for those of you that I've met, but for those of you that I don't know your name and you don't know mine. Can you honestly say if I was writing this, that it is obvious to everyone around me that I have a love for the church because I serve there and I worship there. And the reality is I focus my life. What Christ is doing in and through his body is the center of my life, not every other thing. For many, it's not the center. It's out there on the fringe. It's one of 50 choices. Maybe I have time. Maybe I don't. Maybe it's important. Maybe it's not. Could you say with Paul that, listen, I can't wait to be there. You know why? Because I want to employ my gifts. God has gifted me with teaching, and I want to use it for you and for you and for you. I want to help you grow in your faith. And I have the gift of hospitality, and I know that people come in, and they're nervous, and they've never been in this building. I want to make them feel welcome. I have a gift of hospitality. I want to pour it into somebody else. It's not a matter of I'm not there. What difference does it make? It's a matter if I'm not there. I don't have the chance to pour out into the lives of people and to love people. I don't have do you have a shepherd's heart? Are you passionate about world evangelism? Do you, do you have a missional heart? A passion to see people saved? Do you have a confidence in the gospel? Can it be said of you that, you know what, they're eager to go preach. They're eager to go on mission. They're eager to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and around this community. Why? Because they still believe that people are saved when we preach the word of God. And we mention the name Jesus. And we share his story. Or are we ashamed? I read a couple years ago, I think it was about a year ago, what Tony Morita wrote. He said, do you want to know when we're ashamed of the gospel? He said, let me try to help you with that. He said, we're ashamed of the gospel when we're afraid to tell it. He said, we're ashamed of the gospel when we're too intimidated to live it out in the public square. He said, I'm ashamed of the gospel when I'm too lazy to teach it. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I'm too selfish to live a life worthy of it. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I make other things the center of my life rather than the kingdom. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I affirm any political, economic, social position that denies what Jesus Christ taught about the poor, the orphan, the sick, the elderly, the homeless. He said, I'm ashamed of the gospel when I spend more money on chocolate than charity. I'm ashamed of the gospel when my social life becomes more important than my church life. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I spend more time combing my hair than I do in prayer to God. Folks, if we're unashamed of the gospel, we'll live a life of faith that is centered on the crucified Christ. 
we'll live a life that shows the world that we only care about one man's opinion, and his name is Jesus. We only care about what one person thinks because he is the only person that I will have to stand in front of one day and give an account for my life. And his name is Jesus. And so today, if you don't know this Jesus, I want to talk to you first because I want you to give your life to Christ. You see, to have the good news of Jesus, you've got to understand the bad news that we're all sinners. How many sins did it take to condemn you? Just one. When you break the law in one place, you've broken the whole law. You cannot speed for 100 days, but the day you get caught speeding, it doesn't matter what you didn't do. You're not in trouble for what you didn't do. You're in trouble for what you did do. And the Bible says that the wage of sin is death. That because of sin, we're separated from God. Now sin has a hold of us, and we try to stop, and we can't. We try to overcome, and we can't. It's because we still have that old nature that drives us to sin and self Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. Death wasn't God's plan. Life was God's plan. And Jesus came to take your sin in the punishment and to die for it. He literally took your place on the cross, died your death, paid the price necessary for you to be forgiven. And the Bible says, how do you receive that forgiveness? Faith. You believe Jesus died? was buried and rose again for you. That he was sinless, so he paid for your sin and gave you all of his righteousness. And you stand before God in Christ, a saint. Do you believe it? That he can do that, that he was raised? If you do, then I would ask you today, surrender your life to Jesus. Repent of your sins, turn away from the life that you're living, and turn to Jesus, and he can and he will save you. And he will change you and transform your life. I know because he did it for me. As we go into this time, if you want to receive Christ, you can pray right where you are for him to save you. Pray about those things I just talked about. And if it's from a heart that means it, those words God will honor and hear. church, maybe you're here today and you're asking, could I write that about me and it be true? And if not, then let's ask God to change our hearts. I told you this introduction was about us. Ask God to give us that kind of passion for people, for the mission, the courage to believe the gospel can save.